Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, welcome everyone. It's great to have you here. Um, we're always excited to learn with you. And without further ado, I'd love to introduce Johnny Schnitzer. He's going to be speaking on Zionism according to New York Sheriff and a Serbian Kabbalist. We are so excited to have a co-sponsor today, Temple Solel, and we thank you for your partnership. This event will be discussing the Serbian Kabbalist Rabbi Yehuda Alkali may or may not have heard of New York Sheriff Mordecai Emanuel Noah and vice versa. Contemporaries both had a Zionist dream more than half a century before Theodore Herzl. Let's view the text which may have influenced the Austrian father of modern Zionism. Schnitzer is a PhD candidate focusing on medieval Kabbalah. His dissertation is focused on the Kabbalistic system of thought of Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. Johnny is also preparing a critical edition of his commentary on Sefer Yisira, probably the only PhD student in Jewish philosophy who can say that he once beat the head of Israeli naval commandos in a swimming race. Johnny's also the author of Mossad thriller, The Way Back, which paints a picture of contemporary Israel. Johnny has recently orchestrated the publishing of an English edition of the Hitler Haggadah an important piece of Moroccan Jewish history from the Holocaust. He's also taken on several leadership roles in the Jewish world, including advisor to the CEO of Birthright and executive manager with Stand With Us. He lectures on a wide variety of topics relating to Judaism and Israel, especially about the untold stories and unspoken heroes of Jewish history. Johnny is happily married with four gorgeous little kids, lives in Israel, and thinks that Australian rules football is the greatest sport ever invented and with that eclectic bio we'll pass it over to you johnny thank you thank you so much pam uh, it's wonderful to be here uh, uh, so good afternoon to everyone um i'm super 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 excited for for today's lesson what we're going to be doing um because it, it, it's it's going to be different to right usually what we do in a lesson is we learn texts we learn jewish texts but but here it's going to be different because we're focusing on a practical idea we're talking about a zionist state a state for the jewish people a, a political idea a very practical idea but we're going to be looking at texts and we're going to be looking at these unspoken heroes figures who um it's, it's interesting when you think about Zionism, right? There's this chapter that we're always told and it kind of starts with Herzl. And it makes sense because Herzl, you know, was sort of at the right place at the right time. This great leader, right? If we read Sokolov, if we read Chada'am, anyone we read at the time who met, touched, saw Herzl, you know, this was just an incredible, incredible character who, who simply dedicated his life to, to, this, to this vision. However, however, um, the, the plot thickens because there were other characters. Here I'm going to start uh, uh, sharing this. And what we're going to do today is there were other figures. And my claim is that Herzl, Herzl was amazing, right? I'm not, there's not going to be any Herzl bashing here. Herzl was incredible. However, um, there were other characters, other figures, historic figures um, who 
lived in two cases, you know, uh, 50 years, more than 50 years before Herzl. And, and one feminine uh, character uh, who, who didn't write any Jewish texts, but I'm going to start with her just to sort of, just to kind of show how um, embedded this idea of Herzl as the father of Zionism. And we're going to question that, right? We want as, as a sort of candidate in Jewish philosophy, my goal is that by the time we're done, we don't have answers about Zionism, but we're more perplexed and have more questions. So that's, that's what we're going to do. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to focus on two figures. We're going to focus on our New York sheriff, Mordechai Manuel Noach, uh, who lives, he's living early 19th century. Uh, um, we're going to touch upon him in a moment. And we're going to deal with our Serbian Kabbalist, Rabbi Udal Kalai, who's living around the same time, both wrote, taught, preached, uh, and they have fascinating texts, which are written and thought of way before Herzl and are strikingly, strikingly, strikingly similar. However, what interests us here, because we want to learn together, we're not going to be, our goal is not to prove Herzl learned from others, Herzl wasn't the first. No, we're here to learn exciting ideas. We're going to see how Emmanuel Noach looks at the prophet Isaiah, and he interprets him in one of the most creative and incredible ways possible to an American audience and saying, we're in a very unique period in history and we need to act. And then we're going to look at Rabbi Uda Alkali, our Kabbalist, who looks at the Zohar, perhaps the holiest book on the mystical Jewish bookshelf. And he looks at Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the hero of the Zohar, and he sees how Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai envisions 19th century, 20th century events. He even envisions Herzl. So we're going we're gonna to touch upon these exciting texts. But before that, we must talk for just a moment, because she didn't write any texts, but as an intro, uh, we must talk about this, this uh, woman we see here, uh, Hannah Nassi. Who was Hannah Nassi? Hannah Nassi was quite possibly the first attempt in Jewish history to establish a Jewish state. Who was Hannah Nassi or La Senora? Before I tell you about her and the fact that she lived in the 16th century, um, if you ask me how I would describe Hananasi, I would tell you that she is a cross between Moses Montefiore, Theodore Herzl, and James Bond. Or, or she, I don't know if you know, but in the 16th century, we have all these Moranos, Jews that have to escape Portugal, and they reach Italy, they flee to Italy, they all speak Ladino, yet they, they don't know how to read the Bible because the, no Ladino Bible has been printed. She, she puts in the money to print the first Ladino Bible. And the guy that publishes the, the, the Bible with her money, he writes an introduction and he says, do you want to know who Hananasi is? Take the prophetess Devorah, take Miriam, take the, the Sarah, Rachel, Rivka, take all of the grand ladies in the Bible Put them all together, and you're going to come close to who Hannah Nassi is. Okay, so in a nutshell, what's her story to sort of excite us at the very outset in the beginning? So Hannah Nassi is married to one of the wealthiest Jews in Portugal. Um, 16th century, we've already had the Spanish expulsion, and it's, it's happening now in Portugal as well. Her husband, uh, who very soon becomes late husband, um, they're running all of this, this economy of this business of spices and the sort of spice trail 
from Portugal, Spain, all through to Venice and all over the world, right? We're, we're talking about one of the richest individuals in the world. And yet upon the death of her husband, Hananasila Senora, Dona Grazia becomes the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest people. She, she takes on the, the family business and she takes on another thing. She knows that her late husband wasn't only running a successful business of spices and other commodities between Portugal and Venice, but perhaps the reason for this business operation was because it always it also enabled Jews to flee from Portugal to Venice. They, 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 they were Jews that looked to save other Jews. And then one day, Hananasi understands this isn't going to work anymore. I have to leave. But, but right there is anti-Semitism. And she flees to Venice. She flees to Italy. And she understands that there too, it is not going to work. And then she has an idea. There's the Sultan. There's the Turkish Sultan. She goes to the Turkish Sultan. And she's a businesswoman, right? So she knows to give her highest offer first. She says, give me Jerusalem. He says, out of your mind. What about Tiberius? You got it. 16th century, we're talking 1560s, 1560s. This woman, by the way, this might not even be her photo. Remember what with this painting, there's a debate of whether this was really her or not. Remember the James Bond aspect, many passports. Um, Hananasi is able to buy from the Turkish Sultan, Tiberius. She starts building walls. Jews all over Europe, especially in Italy, start spreading the word. La Signora is no longer only building synagogues and, and, and putting money into to, 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 to finance important Jewish books, fuel for our souls. She is also now building a Jewish state. However, as, as, as tragically happens, on a ship from uh, uh, Turkey to Israel to, to Palestine, um, she, uh, uh, there's a tragic accident, the ship sinks, Hananasi dies, and with her, this dream. I will conclude with something very interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, but I'm just going to throw it out there because historians haven't yet discussed this. Is it by chance that a mere year or two after Hananasi tries to establish this, this, what we could call a Jewish state in, in effect, in the north of Israel, just a year later, the great Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Ari, who, who, who becomes, right, he tries to, to, to sort of, you know, bring redemption, albeit in a different way, leaves Egypt and comes to Israel. It's time to come. Is there a connection between the two? I'm not sure. But one thing is definite. I think it's safe to say that Hananasi is, our first, is, is, is the mother of the Zionist idea. And we cannot take that away from her. Uh, uh, so so that's, that's a sort of introduction. But like I said, she didn't write text. She was a businesswoman, Tachlis, right? She did. She acted. And we're going to focus on these, these two other guys, uh, fascinating characters. And we're going to start with Mordechai Emanuel Noach. Okay. And, and, and like, as I mentioned... While it is tempting to sort of wonder, did Herzl know about them, read of them, be inspired by them? Let's just focus on the text that they wrote because they are fascinating. So let's start with Mordechai Manuel Noach. Mordechai Manuel Noach, interestingly, like Hananasi, much like Hananasi and much like Rabbi Yudal Kalai, Mordechai Manuel Noach, what the three of these individuals have in, in common 
is that they are all from Murano families. They are all from families that fled, their forefathers fled Portugal and Spain. Uh, and it's interesting that these characters that fled Portugal and Spain ultimately are our sort of first, uh, uh, um, you know, first attempts to try and establish a Jewish state. Okay, so who is Mordechai Emanuel Noach? He's part of a very respectable family in the United States. Um, he's, he's friends with, with John Adams. He's friends with Jefferson. He's friends with a few presidents, right? We're talking high society. Um, very early on in his career, uh, he becomes the ambassador of the United States to North Africa, and he's sent to Tunisia. Um, as a result of this trip, which is, you know, it isn't very long, we're not going to get into why and what, but he, he, he's able to meet Jews in North Africa, right, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, he meets Jews in Europe, he meets Jews all over the world, and he notices a startling difference between the rights that he has as a Jew in the United States of America and his brethren around the world. He writes a travel log. He publishes a book. His first piece is a book, uh, uh, right, uh, about his time in England, France, Spain, and of course, in the you know in North Africa. He writes about the Jews that he met there. And but, but what's really interesting is what happens as a result of him coming back. And I'm not going to get into the fact that he was a publicist. He was a playwright. He was he was the sheriff of New York. Right. We're talking about a larger than life character. Uh, and by the way, in brackets, I must say, there are some historians that have viewed Emmanuel, Mordechai Emanuel Noach as a kind of very flamboyant, very sort of, dare I say, full of himself sort of character. I, I don't take that approach. I simply don't take that approach. I, I think this is simply a larger than life character who, had, who, who, who simply got it, as we're going to see in a moment. So he comes back from his tour. Um, and the first interesting piece, now, what we're going to be dealing with is we're going to be dealing with, um, there are three, I guess we could say there are sort of three stops, three uh, ideational stops uh, uh, in, in Noach's career, in his sort of, you know, in his system of thought. The first one is just as he comes back from his time as an ambassador. And as we will see, it as a very practical phase. His middle phase um, so the first phase is 1818. We're going to touch upon it in just a moment. His second phase is 1825, where he has this sort of Uganda idea to create a sort of temporary state for the Jews in America. But what we're going to, what we're going to focus on most with Mordechai Emanuel Noach and what I think is, is the height of his, of, his, of his thought is a piece that he wrote in 1945. In fact, it started not as a piece, but as a speech. It was a speech that he gave in 1945 in a large hall in Manhattan. In fact, it was such a long speech that it was given on two occasions a month apart, and it was then published uh, uh, very shortly after. And it's called The Discourse on the Restoration of, of the Jews. And that's what we're going to mainly focus on, because that is really where his idea, the way he analyzes the prophet Isaiah, is ingenious. Okay. So he comes back from being an ambassador in, in North Africa and Europe. And so, right, we know that Sherit Israel is the first synagogue in North America. Um, and, and, and their first synagogue, right? So we have the first, that with the first synagogue is incepted in the 1730s, 1734, perhaps. 
on Mill Street. Uh, um, but, 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 but then Emmanuel Noach, uh, who's a member of the congregation, when they, in the inception of the second Mill Synagogue, a picture of which you see here, uh, uh, credit to the uh, website of the uh, uh, Sherid Israel uh, 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 congregation, he gives a speech. And as part of his speech, he says the following. This isn't just an idea, right? He's talking about the need to come back to, the, the need for the, for the Jews to come to the land of Israel. It's time. This is not just an idea. I have spent much time among them, Jews in Europe and North Africa, and become well acquainted with them. The world's riches are at their disposal, as well as the ability to grab weapons and uphold an army of 100,000 men. The reason I begin our journey with Noach, with this piece, is because we are about to see that it is very different. Noach changed. It is very different to where he is, where he is headed. Two things I would like to point out. The first is that Noach, um, his first attempt at thinking of how to solve the problem of the Jewish people, right? He lives, he has rights in America, but he sees that there are many Jews. In fact, he says that he's calculated there are 7 million Jews in the world. He knows that many of them you know, aren't, aren't well off and the place for the Jewish people, there is only one place, that's the land of Israel. And interestingly here, we see that Noach perhaps naturally addresses a Jewish community because soon it's going to change. He's going to stop talking to Jews because Jews don't listen to Noah. He's addressing Jews. But the second thing is the very militant tone, right? He's talking here not about ideas. He's talking here about it's time to grab weapons and it's time to, to start an army and take what is ours. This is what he's saying. Interestingly, another sort of, you know, idea, I don't, this, this can't be proven, when we discuss Rabbi Yuda Alkali, a Serbian Kabbalist, he had a teacher called Rabbi Yehuda Bivas, who was in the Balkans. Whether Noach met him or not, I don't know. But interestingly, it was Bivas who we know first said, and we know this from Alkali, and we're talking around the time of Noach, Jews need to get up, grab weapons, and take Israel. So it's very interesting that we have in Manhattan, 1818, a speech very similar to that of, of a Jewish rabbi in the Balkans around the same time. The only two documented that I know of, by the way, in this time. But it's interesting. Okay, so this is the first, our first stop. Okay, like I said, we're going to rush through to get to, to the, the, you know, the, the main part. Okay, they don't listen. Clearly, no one is going to grab arms and, and take the land of Israel. So Noach's next attempt, much like Herzl's Uganda idea, get this, 1825, we're talking uh, 75 years before the Uganda idea, we're talking almost a century before Herzl, Noach writes to uh, the American president and says, give me Grand Island, let me buy Grand Island, right, Grand Island in New York, sort of near Niagara Falls, strategically it's very interesting, it's sort of in the middle of nowhere, kind of back then, and yet it's, it's kind of, you know, this, this nice island, not going to interfere with anyone. And he says, give me Grand Island. And, and, and right. And what is he? And, and they have this grand inception. And he says, uh, um, uh, get, this is from the speech he gave, right, on the day when supposedly he hoped he sent letters all over Europe, all over the world. It, it was going to be called Ararat. The city was going to be called Ararat, right, the famous mountain, the Noach story. And he says, gather to the land of milk and honey where Israel may repose in peace under his vine and fig tree 
and where our people may familiarize themselves with science of government and the lights of learning and civilization as may qualify them for that grand and final restoration to their ancient heritage, which the times so powerfully indicate. So here, we already see a kvetch, we see a difference, right? This is, he wants the Jews to come to Grand Island, to come to one place, by the way, it, it doesn't, the, the, the American, you know, the, the president is, is against this idea. So he goes and buys, he buys land in Buffalo and, um, and he has this big ceremony and he has this big plaque that you see here. Uh, um, I believe it's in a museum somewhere today. Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, right? This was the city of refuge, a temporary city of refuge, Right. There's debate whether Uganda was meant to be a means to the end or, or you know, the ultimate goal. Ararat was never meant, it was, it's a temporary thing. And interestingly, Noach writes that there are two main purposes, in addition to what we see here. Noach, who we're going to see in a moment, is quite a prophet. I, I can't stress this enough, quite a prophet. Um, he knows, firstly, he knows that Jews need to come to Ararat because it'll be a good chance to uh, you know, learn diplomacy, politics. We need to learn how to rule because we haven't done that for thousands of years. And we need to learn Hebrew. We need to, to be able to speak. He also prophesizes the melting pot. He understands that there is going to be a problem between Sfaradim, Ashkenazim, Temanim. There's going to be a lot of tension. He says, it's good that we come to one place before Israel to sort of, you know, live happily together, get to know each other so that we can then flock to, to, to Israel uh, uh, happily. So this is the second stop. It's a failed attempt. Uh, many mock this. In fact, many of the uh, historic testimonies and the way Noach is depicted until this day is has a lot to do with Ararat, partly because perhaps he did say that he was going to be the judge, the sort of shofet of Israel. But in any event, it didn't work. Okay. He even wrote, by the way, a piece about how the American Indians are part of the Lost Tribes. We're not going to touch upon this, but it's interesting because there were other characters in Amsterdam a couple of hundred years before him, also descendants of families that fled uh, Spain and Portugal, such as Menashe ben Israel, who wrote similar Trieste, treaties. Okay. But what we're looking at, right, which is really, and I sent a, 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 through Pam, I sent a link. You can read this online. It's been scanned. It is a gorgeous piece of literature. I highly recommend. This is a must. This is one of my favorite texts on Zionism. This is a masterpiece. Okay. So the year is 1945. Noach understands that the Jews are no longer listening to him. So who does he go talk to? He goes talks to his Christian, Christian brethren. What we are going to see in this speech, because it is a speech, it's not a book, it's a book written as a result of uh, a two-phase speech. He does two incredible things. The first thing, and here already we see, and I, th this is already a system of thought. This is already here. This is well thought out. And that there is an example, if put, what is God trying to tell us? Or what are we meant to do as a result? And specifically here, Noah is pointing out that when it comes to the Jewish question of when we get to go back to the land of, uh, of Israel, we, we need to understand that historic events are part and parcel divine providence. That's the first thing we need to understand before we look at the speech. The second thing is that he identifies the very birth of the American nation and the United States of America as the 
golden opportunity which must be seized by the Jewish people's Christian brethren because they have a vested interest in bringing their Jewish brethren back to the land of Israel. And we're going to see that at the very end of the speech, what does he do? He begins with diplomacy, he sort of explains worldly events in a way that really shows that he is a prophet and a futurist. Um, he, by the way, he knows that we're talking 1845. He already predicts that England are going to conquer Egypt, that they are going to get Palestine, that the Turkish Sultan is going to collapse. Like the guy knows his stuff. Uh, he also, by the way, predicts Jewish demography, uh, the Jewish demographic rise in America. I'm not sure how many Jews at the time were aware, like Noach, of there is a reason why he wanted the Ararat state. He predicted that millions of Jews were going to come to America because he said it, it's, 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 it's a no-brainer. Look at the rights you have in America. It's bound to happen. So, so right, so he, he starts off by painting this pic, this historic picture, and then very quick, and then towards the end of his speech, as we are going to see it, it's sort of the best part of the speech. He he reinterprets chapters of the prophet Isaiah to show that Isaiah is actually talking about the American people, no less. It's, it's, it's epic. Okay. It is, I acknowledge, a novel, though a natural appeal made, I may say, for the first time to the Christians. This is how it begins. Since the advent of Christianity, extraordinary events shadow forth results long expected, long prophesied, long ordained commotions in the state and divisions in the church, new theories, new hopes, the political events in Syria, Egypt, Turkey, and Russia, and Russian and Russia indicate the approach of great and important revolutions, right? He, he, he knows what's going to happen. Nationalism, which may facilitate the return of the Jews to Jerusalem and the organization of a powerful government in Judea. What he then goes on to do, as I mentioned, was he, get, he, he actually, like a, a seasoned political diplomat, he explains what's going on with Turkey, what's going on with England, where the interests are and how this all leads to the obvious, it's going to be time for the Jews to come back to Israel. And then he says the following, where, I ask, can we commence this great work of regeneration with a better prospect of success than in a free country and a liberal government? Where can we plead the cause of independence for the children of Israel with greater confidence than in the cradle of American liberty, right? He, I wish, I wish I could go back in time, right? Marty McFly, take me back in the DeLorean just to hear Emmanuel Noch once give a speech. It must have been out of this world, right? I dare even say almost hurts or eat your heart out, but, but I'm not going to say that. I, I take it back. Okay. And then he continues. Right, so we've set the, we, we've set the stage. He's, he's alluded to, and we're going to come back to it, that divine providence and historic events are intertwined. And that what he sees right now is the importance of understanding the historic event called the American people, American liberty, Christian brethren of the Jews, and its relevance to Jewish restoration to the land of Israel. The predictions of the restoration of Israel distinctly intimated by prophecy are as full as, as were the predictions of our overthrow and desolation. In almost every page of the Bible, we have directly and indirectly in positive language and in parables and literal assurances and guarantees for the restoration of the Jews to Judea, right? It's clear that he is, he is immensely devoted to this text. 
He's read it backwards and he's looking for these hints. Soon it's going to be fascinating, by the way, to compare the way Noach and his, his sort of uh, historic or social, socio-anthropological context, how it makes him interpret these texts and what will happen with our Kabbalist, with al Kalai. We have suffered the curses and now wait the blessings. No, no, my friends. What would be to us our blessings, our redemption, our salvation without our restoration? Our land is blighted with curse. Shall it not enjoy a blessing? It long hath mourned. Shall it not rejoice? Right? It's just beautiful words. And, and now we get to Isaiah. And Isaiah wrapped in the contemplation of the glorious future reserved for his brethren of the Jewish church, says Isaiah, lift up thine eyes round about and see all they gather themselves together. They come to see thy sons shall come from after from afar. He then talks about how the Jewish people are going to come back, right? So Noach is, is slowly, remember, he is talking to a Christian audience, to an American audience, a Christian audience. He knows that Isaiah is one of the favorites. And, and he, he's saying, you know as well as I do, you know your Bible. Just like we, know, we were banished, we're also going to go back, right? So, so he, he, he's saying things that, that, that we already all know. On these unfulfilled predictions, my friends, rest the happiness of the, of the human race, no less. He's talking about a universal project. And you are heirs of this new covenant, partners in the compact, sharers in the glory. Understand these prophecies distinctly. They relate to the literal and not to the spiritual restoration of the Jews, as many believe. Oh, now we're getting to criticism. Now he says, boys and girls, Ladies and gentlemen, I know that there are many in the world, including and especially my brethren, the Jews, who read Isaiah and say, it's metaphoric. It's, it's sort of, you know, it'll happen at some point. No, he's talking about historic events that people have to make happen. Get this. You don't believe me? See what he says now. Oh, wait, but before he, he bashes his brethren, He's now going to have a go at his audience. And he does this, you know, very, uh, 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 it's quite amazing. Above all, you that believe in the predictions of your apostles, you who believe in the second coming of the son of man, where is he to come to? By your own showing to Jerusalem, to Zion, to the beloved city of hope and promise. He is, according to your own evangelists, to your own belief to come to the Jews. And yet you convert them here. You strive to evangelize them in the face of all that is sacred and the promises of God and the predictions of his prophets that they shall occupy their own land as Jews, right? He's, he, he, he's, he's very sensitively saying, right, you've agreed with everything I've said so far, but look what you're doing. I understand you, but look what you're doing. You're, you're going against the, the grand plan. And I don't, he even continues to sort of bring words out of out of the mouth of Jesus. He brings Jesus on board to say, you're going against Jesus. Every attempt to colonize the Jews in other countries has failed. Their eye has steadily rested on their beloved Jerusalem, own, own beloved Jerusalem. The Jews are in the most favorable, favorable position to repossess themselves in the promised land and organize a free and liberal government. So he's talking to his Christian audience and he's saying, right, we read the text, we've established that the historic events, the historic events, which are driven by divine providence, have brought us to a certain point. 
Let's go back to the texts. We see that according to texts, historically, we're meant to make something happen. But there's a problem. Hienoch explains why he is talking to his Christian brethren without saying so. The Jews suppose that that period of restoration, which they so ardently desire and pray for, must be determined by the will of God alone, and that their agency in bringing about this great advance is not required, and consequently they wait patiently without making those preliminary efforts so essential to the consumption of that great project. We never yet have been fully sensible of our duties and obligations as agents of a higher power. These are harsh words. We never yet, the Jewish people, have been fully sensible of our duties and obligations as agents of a higher power. He's saying the chosen people are not acting like a chosen people. Providence has endowed us with mind, with reason, with energy. If we do not move when he disposes events to correspond with the fulfillment of his promises and the predictions of his prophets, we'll leave undone that which he entails upon us as a duty to perform. Meaning, according to Noach, and this is fascinating because it's going to connect to Alkali soon, there is a danger. Because divine providence is interconnected with historic events, something has to push historic events. Historic events happen. God kind of gives a push, right? Things happen, but then we need to do something. And he says, there is a risk here, that there is a grave danger. What will happen if we miss this opportunity? Right? One could argue that it was missed, but, but this is his worry. Now, this is the best part. I have referred to this country as the most suitable spot from its character and its institutions, I skipped those bits, from which a project of this kind might with security and success be undertaken. But has it never occurred to you, my friends, that the 18th chapter of Isaiah might possibly have ref reference to America in connection with the restoration of the Jews? Indulge me for a moment in examining that short but singular chapter. I really wish we could have heard him speak. I, it's just such a shame. Okay, so he's now going to interpret these verses of Isaiah. It's beautiful. Hail to the land, shadowing with wings. Imagine how great it would have been, by the way, had Noah written a commentary to, to the prophet, like that we could read this. This would be what. Hail to the land, shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. The prophet in his vision, in this vision, was in Palestine, right? Notice also how it's very clear that, that, that Noach, while he is this sort of, uh, uh, he is a thinker, a deep thinker, he is also a diplomat. He is, he, he is a person with two feet firmly on the ground. He knows where he is. And, and this is also how he interprets it. The prophet in his vision was in Palestine, having Europe on his right, Africa on his left, and in front the Mediterranean Sea. And on looking down on the northern coast of Africa speaks of a land which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. That land is America. But all lands spoken of in the Bible have a distinctive name. How is it that the prophet Isaiah speaks of it only as a land? It was not discovered at the period of the prophecy and consequently could have no name. Right? He's got an answer. It is our Western world and could mean no other. Just to be clear, Emmanuel Noach 
has reinterpreted Isaiah to say the prophet Isaiah is actually talking about America. Now, this is why it gets better. Hail to the land shadowing with wings. The arms of no country are so emphatically wings as those of the United States. It is an eagle in the act of flying without spread wings, which under the shadow of her wings offers a shelter for the persecuted of all nations that sendeth ambassadors by sea. Right? Which other country can only send ambassadors by sea? That country cannot but send ambassadors by sea. That, that is America. I did not bring all of the rest of the stuff, but, but, but it's, it's incredible. What Noach does here, and this is sort of, this is where slowly history sort of, you know, we, we pull down the curtain, the red curtain on, on Noach because it doesn't eventuate, right? If, if we said perhaps, you know, I, I think we, we may say of Herzl, he really was the right person, but also importantly, the right time. Noach, he even wrote at some point that he felt that he lived a few decades too, too, too soon. He was too soon for his time, too early for his time. And, and, and this, this is the peak of his thought. And the reason it is so amazing, as I mentioned, not only this evolution, he's already envisioned the Uganda plant. And, you know, Max Raisin, Max Raisin was a rabbi in Philadelphia in the previous century. He wrote a book. Uh, uh, in Hebrew on Emmanuel Noach that got published in Europe. It is the way Max Raisin uh, 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 describes Noach is, is a prophet. He's this grand, grand figure. Uh, um, and he says, look, he says, you know, the amazing thing about Noach, he says, the amazing thing about Noach is that he came to these con conclusions whilst he wasn't pressed to a wall. Herzl, Pinska, Echadam were all pressed to a wall. There was Dreyfus, there was anti-Semitism, not Noach. Noach lived in, in an area where there was liberty, where he had rights, and yet he came to these conclusions, and yet it didn't work. Noach, I'm just going to conclude by saying he was one of the members to create the um, Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, I think he was one of the founding members of New York uh, uh, University. Uh, a great giver of charity, a larger-than-life figure. Uh, and as we see here, between 1818 to 1845, he is written, he, he is, you know, he, he has given uh, uh, orations, speeches, ideas that, that simply, you know, preceded his time. So this, this is our first sort of father of Zionism, or after our mother of Zionism, Chana Nasi, we have Emmanuel Noach, the sheriff of New York. And now we are ready to move on to someone who lived parallel yet a little bit later. We are moving on now to our Serbian Kabbalist, who's not really a Serbian Kabbalist. He's actually a sporadic because he, like Noah, comes from a family. Alkali means of Kala. Kala was a, 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 perhaps a little city uh, in uh, medieval uh, Spain. His uh, uh, forefathers were, uh, were uh, expel, expelled from, from Spain. And, uh, and he ends up in, in Serbia. Okay, he is the rabbi there in Serbia. Uh, by the way, fun fact, even though we are dealing here with texts, um, the, okay, the guy, okay, so if Noach was writing right between 1818, 1845, so Yudal Kalai, and we're going to touch upon this in a moment, um, 
he starts writing between 25, 30, 18, 30, 18, 40 are his sort of prominent texts. And uh, uh, interestingly, um, his, um, how does it go? Right, so the guy that blew the shofar in his synagogue in Serbia was Herzl's grandfather, right? True fact. So it's just very interesting because we're going to see in a moment a lot of similarities. Okay. So Rebud al-Kalai, um, he starts by understanding, like Noach, the importance of teaching Hebrew. He starts teaching Hebrew children in Serbia. Uh, he writes a book called Darkei Noam, which is all about the importance of uh, speaking Hebrew as part of the Jewish restoration to the land of Israel. Um, how would we describe Alkali? Um, so Alkali is on the one hand, a sort of he, he writes brief political manifestos, and yet they are dipped in deep Kabbalah. And some of his works are simply very deep Kabbalah, but the common denominator between the two is that he has some very original ideas, uh, again, way before Herzl, and sort of kind of parallel, but a bit after Noach, um, to do with how, much like Noach, he also identifies that we have to get up, we have to act, we have to act, we have to act, we can't wait. And by the way, it's very interesting, given that uh, uh, Alkali is a religious Jew, a rabbi, um, because like what Noach's criticism, many of these rabbis had said, we need to sit and wait, wait for divine providence. And Alkali says, no, and he proves it. He proves why you can't wait. Okay, his first idea is that there are going to be two messiahs. There is going to be a messiah son of David, who is going to sort of bring about uh, uh, redemption, uh, resurrection of the dead, but that will only happen after messiah son of Joseph comes. And messiah son of Joseph, who is this? The sages taught that before the coming of messiah son of David, messiah son of Joseph will come and gather Israel from their exile. And he will reestablish our home and build it, its ruins and create a settlement in the land of Israel where there will be farmers and vine growers, at first little by little, growing steadily until we reach a multitude. And it is for this reason that the first redeemer is called Messiah, son of Joseph. Right? He wants to prove this point. For he is like Joseph, the biblical Joseph. Just as Joseph was sent uh, by God to sustain his brethren, so too Messiah, son of Joseph, will be sent by God to sustain and supervise the livelihood of the immigrants, finding their occupation and crafts to make a living in the land of Israel. And this will be his greatness, much like that of Joseph, who provided sustenance in the land. Just as Joseph uh, reigns was under the rulership of Pharaoh, so too uh, uh, the Messiah, son of Joseph, will be under the rulership of the rule of the land, the, the Turkish sultan. And then he goes on to discuss, uh, uh, you know, what uh, what this sort of uh, uh, supernatural redemption will look like. So he has a, a, a natural process like Noach and a supernatural, but the supernatural will only occur if we do the natural. So this natural process, Messiah, son of Joseph, will now get this because I think this is a prophecy as well. Alkali was also, I think, a prophet much like Noach. Messiah, son of Joseph, right? This is written, uh, we're talking 1830. Messiah, son of Joseph will be um, from among the elders of Israel as is written, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together as they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go yada, yada, yada. And he will be called Messiah, son of Joseph, for he will be selected by the chosen assembly 
which will be comprised of leading, leading figures of the Jews in Europe. As it is written in Genesis Rabbah, he is, he is bringing Genesis Rabbah on board. Awake, north wind, and come south wind. Right? He's now going to interpret Song of Songs through Genesis Rabbah to explain how the Europeans are going to appoint Herzl. He doesn't know, but, you know. When the exiles awaken, from the, uh, awaken in the north, they shall come and camp in the south when the King Messiah awakens, for he is in the north and will come to build the holy temple, which is in the south. That's what the Genesis Rabbah says. That is, this passage refers to the part of Europe, which is in the northern part of the world, and the Messiah will be one of the leading figures in Europe. We're not yet getting mystical here. He's just sort of explaining, right? But we understand so far, and this is important to understand because it's, it, it, it's an innovative idea. The na a natural process has to occur before the supernatural, before real redemption. And that natural process has to happen by an assembly. Alkali wrote a lot about the importance of organization, of an assembly. He had this whole system where you're going to have to come to the land the poor are going to come first because they have nothing to lose. So the rich are going to have to provide jobs and create an economy and a banking system, right? It's incredible, the stuff that he wrote. And it's so, so similar to Herzl. It is simply so, so similar. Uh, apart from that, that his state was a bit more Jewish. Okay. Um, so the first idea was that the natural redemption will happen before the supernatural. The second innovative idea he has, right? So we already see that he wrote more than Noach, and he really is a deeper thinker. He's a Kabbalist, um, but we can't take away from Manuel Noach what Manuel Noach has and did. But we're going to see now a fascinating reinterpretation of tshuva, right? The way you and I all understand tshuva and the way it appears in the Talmud means, to, it doesn't really mean to repent. It means to return. It means that if we sinned, we need to return to ourselves. We need to atone and then go back to who we really are, the potential of who we are. Right in Judaism, tshuva isn't about becoming the person we can be, like to strive for something, but to go back to our source because it's brilliant from the start. We just have to discover it. It's there. Okay. The sages uh, uh, taught all, all, all the ends have passed, right? He's quoting from the Talmud. And the matter of the Messiah's arrival depends only on tshuva. Right, so the, the sages taught in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, when will Messiah come? When will the happily ever after happen? When we all do tshuva, when we all repent, so to speak. That is, the matter is dependent upon the end, but by general tshuva, to mend the sin of selling Joseph. What's he talking about here? Messiah will come when we do general tshuva, and mend the sin of the selling of Joseph? What's going on here? And it is written in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, now we're sort of getting mystical. If the Israelites do not do tshuva, they will not be redeemed. And tshuva can only be achieved through hardship. This passage refers to general tshuva. Now he's going to explain what general tshuva is, what we just mentioned. And general tshuva, and if the Israelites do not return to the land, they will not be redeemed. Okay. Now we understand that for him, general tshuva means lashuv, to return literally all of Israel, the Israelites to the land of Israel. We still don't understand how it's connected to the selling of Joseph. Right? Usually the models of redemption, 
Look at the first redemption when God redeemed us from Egypt. But we're talking here about the, the, the selling of Joseph. What's the connection? Now he's going to quote the Zohar. This, is, this is, doesn't get better than this. It is written in the Holy Zohar at the start of the portion of Kitetze that God is not called a king, but only in the land of Israel. That is, the first tshuva that the Israelites will do in the days to come is that they will ask for God to be their king, meaning they will ask to return to Israel so that he may be called king. And I heard from the holy mouth of the great and grand Rabbi Yudah Bivas. Remember Bivas, the one that I told you who had said around the time of Noah, perhaps even before him in the Balkans, grab arms, take what's yours, take Israel. He was Alkali's teacher. So Bivas taught him that this is the meaning of the verse in Malachi, the prophet Malachi, return to me and I shall return to you. That is, that we shall return to Israel and only then will his glory dwell upon us. Okay. So we understand that according to Alkali, there is a natural process of redemption led by Messiah, son of Joseph, a sort of Herzl figure, if you like. And then we have uh, uh, this idea of tshuva. And how will this happen? What will this Messiah, son of Joseph, what will his job be? It'll be to make sure that we all come do tshuva, that we all come to Israel. And we all understand that it's got something to do with the selling of Joseph. Okay. Now, this is going to get radical. And how is this connected to Joseph? And then we're going to conclude. Keeping Shabbos means to coming to Israel. For our holy fathers desecrated the Sabbath when they sold Joseph abroad. Therefore, tshuva to the land is keeping Shabbos. This is what the sages meant when they said that if Israel keep even one Shabbat properly, even for one day, the son of David will come. Why is this commandment equal to all other commandments to keep a Shabbos? If Shabbat is kept properly, meaning returning to Israel properly, each and every Israelite. This is revolutionary. This is innovation. This is, this is crazy. Alkali is reinterpreting a famous teaching that says, if all of us keep Shabbos for one week, Messiah will come. And he's saying, no, it's not about keeping Shabbos the end of the week. It's that all Jews do tshuva come to the land of Israel because it's all connected to what happened with Joseph and the brothers. Before we read the next part, what happened with Joseph and the brothers? brothers. Rabbi Yudah Alkali's model for redemption is not based on the first redemption, but it's based on the first sin that led to redemption. And through that, he understands what we need to fix. So what was the sin that Joseph's brothers sold Joseph? And he identifies two flaws in this story. There were two mistakes, two grave mistakes that Joseph's brothers made when they sold Joseph. The first that they, was they were, they were not unified. Had they been unified, loving towards one another, the selling would never have taken place. They were not unified. This means in order for Messiah to come, all Jews need to be unified, to be one. That doesn't mean we're all the same. It means that we all respect one another. The dignity of difference, as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, Zatzal uh, uh, wrote. And the second thing is when they sold him, they sold him abroad. They sold him to Egypt. So if they weren't unified, we have to be unified. If they sent him abroad, hence starting in exile, we have to do the opposite. We have to come back. And he keeps on and says, and our Torah and worshiping God will no longer be a sporadic tradition 
uh, or that of Ashkenaz or Poland or Italy, but rather the tradition of Israel. As Jeremiah said, I gave them one, uh, 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 one heart, sorry, and one path, and he will no longer be called uh, uh, we will no longer be called Sfaradim or Ashkenazim or French or Pollocks and so on and so forth. Israel is our name. Okay. So the model is fixing what happened between Joseph and the brethren. And as a result, he revolutionizes the understanding of what Shabbos is. Shabbat, Lashuv, means to return to Israel. Tshuva means to return to Israel. And, and I didn't even get into all of the political texts like Noach that he writes to explain how this has to happen economically, uh, uh, socially, and so on and so forth. I conclude, I conclude because so that we leave uh, time for questions very quickly. I don't know if you know, but Rabbi Yudah Al-Kalai, this is chilling. Rabbi Yudah Al-Kalai in the year 1840 prophesizes the Holocaust. I'm not making this up. 1840, what happened? We had the, the, the Damascus affair. What was the Damascus affair? There were Jews in Damascus that basically there was a blood libel. There was a, a not a blood libel, a priest, a Christian that was killed. They blamed the Jews. Jews fought. They weren't unified. This whole story had a huge impact on, on, on Alkali. And he says, this year, 1840, and he gets into all sorts of, like Noach, he understands that there are windows of opportunity, historic windows of opportunity in which God is waiting for us to act. And he says, this window has opened in 1840, and it's only going to be open for 100 years. If we don't act, he writes this in 1840, if we don't act now, and we have time. He even says that the sort of, uh, uh, our Messiah, son of Joseph, will come in 66 years. He even predicts kind of Herzl. He says, if we don't act now, the year 1939 is going to be the worst ever. God forbid. Right? So, so uh, just interesting stuff. Um, we have a few minutes for questions. What we've tried to do here is beyond sort of kind of the unspoken heroes of the Zionist project, Hananasi, but mainly Manuel Mordechai Noach uh, um, and Rabbi Yudah Alkali, we've looked at their texts, fascinating texts, where they each have different ideas based on their audiences and historic settings uh, to understand what the Jews need to do in order to return to Zion. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Johnny. I am taking the place of Pam from the end of the session, and I'd like to open up the floor for any questions. What kept Noah from being able to actually form that community in um, in Grand I Great Island? Grand Island. It, no. I mean, think of the Jews that could have been saved, you know, during the Shoah. Uh, so what, what stopped it, unfortunately, were the Jews. Um, he wrote letters. Uh, we have these documented. He wrote letters to rabbinic figures all over Europe, all over the world. Remember, he was an ambassador. He knew literally where they lived, who they were. Um, quite a few wrote back to him mockingly. Part of the problem, and, and you know, we have to sort of be fair, was that he did kind of say that he was sort of going to be like the Shofet. He was going to be not the Messiah, but but the way he presented himself as perhaps the temporary king or something like that, one could see how it could create, you know, a certain sense of antagonism. Um, however, having, but in terms of the Americans, so the American presidents were against this, but then he bought land. He bought land in Buffalo in Ararat, what he started as Ararat, but most of the people that came to the ceremony to see Noach marching in the streets were, were Christians, were Christian Americans, were not Jews. So it's, it's a bit of a tragic episode, but, but, but a, a text that must be read really is fascinating. 
Any other questions? I have a question. Yes. So for if, if we take Herzl as a comparison, so I can understand what made Herzl come with his ideas and with his project to, you know, to find a solution for anti-Semitism, uh, understanding that even after emancipation, uh, there would be no, no really a place for Jews in, uh, in their uh, citizen uh, countries, right? So, so I can understand, I, I can look at Herzl as a, almost as a social need entrepreneur, right? To solve the problem of, of Jews who are being um, um, persecuted and not being having uh, equal rights. So uh, for real. Uh, what 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 was uh, Manuel Noah uh, really? Uh, what was the incentive there? I'm like uh, because it's um, it's it's interesting. He's in the United States where there's always there was no need for emancipation because from day one everybody was equal, right? So <laughs> where where does this need <laughs> come from to? to find a solution for <laughs> people who do not even live in his uh, area because they are in Europe, mostly, most of them, right? It's before the big waves to the United States. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I know the story of Manuel Noach. It's just very interesting to me, the comparison between the two. And secondly, it's also interesting to me that he's choosing an autonomy option um, on the way to maybe political independence. So these two comments question, if you can address to them. So yes, that, so I'll just in brackets, even though you didn't ask, but I'll just mention about alkali. So what drives alkali is if Herzl is living in a time of anti-Semitism, alkali, he mentions how if you look at the Spanish expulsion, the Portuguese expulsion, the Jews being expelled from England, he says all of these was a result of Jews that did not seize upon the divine providence window of opportunity in a historic setting. Okay, so meaning he's living in a time where he says bad stuff's going to hit the fan if we don't act. Now with Noach, it's very simple. He's simply reading the, the first book. He's reading the Bible. He's reading the prophets. And, and there are two things that fuel this. The first thing that fuels this, we need to remember that he was an ambassador. He sees that Jews in Europe and in North Africa um, do not have the rights that he has. He sees the suffering. We, we, he writes about this. So part of it is a, a sheer sense of um, brotherhood, of Jewish peoplehood, and he wants to find a solution. That's the first part. But the second part, and this comes about every time he talks and everything that he writes, is simply he's reading the prophets and he's saying, just like we were kicked out, we have to come back. This is our land. Meaning even for him, and, and it's, fast, you're, it's a fascinating point that you raise because he really was, um, he was one of the most, he comes from one of the most respected families, that, right? He's writing to John Adams' letters and John Adams is writing back to him. Jefferson is writing, they are mates. They are, they are writing forwards to his, they're writing letters, you know? So it's not obvious at all why he'd go look for this, but he understands, as a, even though he's a proud American, he understands that there is only one true home, and that's Jerusalem. And he says, we have to make this happen. And it is interesting. You're right that with him, it's the most perplexing because he doesn't have this Kabbalistic tension that we have with Alkali and this anti-Semitism that Herzl has. Noach really is the enigma here because it, what really is driving? 
I'm inclined to think that there are things that happened when he was, you know, Jews that he met, perhaps rabbis in Tunisia. Maybe he met Bivas, you know, who knows? Um, he doesn't write about this stuff, but there are a lot of similarities. But, but it's, it's a fascinating point. So thank you for that. Thank you. Well, if there are no more questions, I'm going to uh, thank you again uh, for this wonderful presentation. This is fascinating. And I look forward to looking into these people more um, and following your work as you continue to. Uh, research this. And I would like to let everyone know that we're having an event uh, this Thursday, uh, Maimonides, Spinoza, and us toward the intellectually vibrant, Ju toward an intellectually vibrant Judaism. That's this Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, so that will be 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you for, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybatemidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.